are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. All right, well, it is good to uh, be with you this evening. I missed being with you the last two Sundays. My family was out of town on vacation, but it's good to gather with you again this Sunday. And uh, I'm sure some of you have already checked your radar, but it looks like the thunder is to the south of us. So it looks like we should be good to go. If things change, then we'll let you know. Um, but man, it's good to, good to be with you. Good to be with you in person. Those of you joining on Facebook, it's good to gather with you as well. Before we dive into John 12 this, uh, this morning, this evening, uh, let's just go to the Lord in prayer and just ask him to, to bless this time. So would you pray with me? Holy God, we come before you this evening. We give you thanks that we can gather in this place outdoors in the midst of your creation. God, we thank you that you're a gracious redeemer, that you are a good shepherd. And we pray now as we come before your word that you would lead us, God, to still waters and green pastures. Would you calm and quiet our soul before you now? Help us to set aside distractions, real and felt. God, that we would be able just to be attentive to what you want to say to us today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd help us to see and savor our redeemer, Christ our Lord. May you captivate us now as we open up your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you uh, are experiencing something, something significant or unique, and you kind of have that moment where you're like, man, I wish I could just pause this right now and kind of take it all in. Like something going on in your life, you just want to pause it because you don't want to move past it too quickly. Maybe it was a significant event like graduation from school or your wedding day or the birth of a child, or maybe when you saw the Nationals win the World Series. Yeah, that's right, one of you, thank you. Or maybe it was a less significant time in your life, just a, a good time hanging out with friends, still special, a fun meal, an evening with them, or sitting outside on a beautiful day. It's in those moments you can also almost have a, a kind of an out-of-body experience where you are almost observing yourself participating in this event and just thinking like, wow, this is special, this is unique. Well, as we come to our text today, we come upon a very unique and special moment in the life of Jesus. And it's easy in this moment, in the short few verses that Edward just read, these 11 verses, to kind of breeze past them and see, oh, that's kind of interesting, but I'm not really sure that it matters a whole lot for my life or my relationship with Jesus. But we have to remember a couple of things when we come to this text. First off, John is writing this text. He's writing this gospel to us, but John was present in this moment. He's not writing this because he heard someone else talk about it. He's actually there and he's seeing this and he's trying to capture this moment that's right before him in words for himself and for us. And we also have to remember that this is God's word. And that every aspect of God's word is for our good. God intends for it to be something that we read, not just for the sake of information, but transformation. That he wants us to glean something from it, see something from it, experience something in the midst of it. And what's on display in this text, what we get to see, what we get to experience is a picture of extravagant love. A picture of extravagant love. But within it, there's also a sobering reminder for us. 
We all come here this afternoon at different places in our journey with Jesus. Maybe some of you have been following Jesus for a long time, and right now you would say, man, my relationship with Christ is is better than it's been in a long time. I, I feel the intimacy of Christ. I feel like I'm walking closely with Jesus. Maybe for some of you, especially those of you that are younger, kids, you're starting to realize that your faith in Jesus is very much tied to your parents' faith in Jesus. And maybe you're wrestling with, what do I actually believe about Christ? Maybe some of you are just struggling right now spiritually for a lot of different reasons. Maybe some of you are coming this evening and aren't really sure you believe at all. But no matter where you're at, I want us to lean in together to John 12, 1 through 11. And together with John, I want us to kind of pause this moment and step back and look to see what God wants to say to us as we seek to see Jesus more clearly today. John begins this section in John chapter 12 with the word, therefore. And he's doing that because he's trying to help us connect together all that he's just talked about that we looked at over the last two weeks in John chapter 11 with what he's about to say. We saw Lazarus has been raised. The Pharisees are actively plotting to kill Jesus and Passover has begun. These first two verses in John chapter 12, he's setting the context, the location of this main event. Jesus is in Bethany the place where Lazarus was raised from the dead, and there's a meal that's being held in honor of Jesus. The people are coming together, and we know that Martha is there, she's serving, Mary is present, and Lazarus is at the table with Jesus. Now, as I was reading and studying this week, I kind of read that and thought, well, that's that's interesting, there's just some more information, he's kind of setting the scene for this, but then I stopped for a moment, and I was like, wait a minute, like, it's crazy that Lazarus is sitting at the table with Jesus, Like this guy was dead just a few days before. He was in a tomb for four days and Jesus called him out by name and he rose again to new life and now he's hanging out with Jesus at dinner, eating this meal with him. It's crazy. And it's likely that this dinner celebration is happening for the very fact that Jesus did this work, that he raised Lazarus from the grave. And there's most likely more than just Martha, Mary, and Lazarus present. Jesus' 12 disciples are there, and there's also probably people from the town of Bethany that are there as well. Now, all that's well and good, but then something peculiar happens that we see in verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary comes to Jesus as they're sitting there at the table enjoying this meal together and she brings this really, really expensive ointment, kind of perfume, and she pours it on Jesus' feet. But Mary isn't some kind of essential oil salesperson that's trying to get Jesus to buy into her product line. She doesn't just give a few little drops of ointment on Jesus' feet. It says that she anoints his feet with a pound of this stuff. This is like 12 liquid ounces that she's pouring out on Jesus not just a little dropper here and there on Jesus' feet. And it's a highly aromatic ointment. Now that word anoint is important for us to pay attention to. When we look throughout scripture, we see that the word anoint means to set someone apart or to acknowledge their uniqueness or to dedicate them. Throughout the Old Testament, priests and kings were anointed for the task that was given to them. And so what we see throughout Scripture also about Jesus is that Jesus is the King of all kings. That Jesus is our high priest, always serving and making intercession for us. 
And he does that perfectly and eternally. So what Mary's doing here is significant that she anoints Jesus, more significant than she even realizes. Now here in John, it says that she pours this out on his feet. But if you look in some of the other gospel accounts, we see that it says that it's poured out on his head. Now both of these things are true. The author just chooses to focus on one part of the body over the other. Remember, she's pouring out 12 ounces of this stuff on Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, it focuses, that gospel focuses on Jesus being king. And so Mary's talked about putting this ointment on his head because kings were anointed on their heads. But here in John, John's trying to highlight and show Mary's humility and her worship of Jesus. See, to attend to someone's feet in these ancient times, and probably still true today, was a humbling task, the work of a servant. To attend to someone's feet was a lowly prospect for anyone. In fact, Jesus is going to press that in all the more with his disciples in John chapter 13. So much was poured out on Jesus, it was on his head and his feet. So much was poured out on Jesus that Mary uses her hair to wipe off the excess. But let's take this moment and step back for a minute. Step back and pause and look at this scene. It's so unique, so powerful, so mysterious. Lazarus is there, who was once dead, now living. Jesus is there. The disciples are there. Mary and Martha are there. Likely other people are there. And what she does in this moment, we shouldn't just read over and be like, that's kind of weird, but I don't know. Let's just keep going. No, this is out of the ordinary for everyone that's there. This wasn't a regular occurrence to take place. It would have caught people's attention to pour out this expensive perfume so much that the whole house is filled with its fragrance. For Mary to let down her hair in the company of men. But the question is, why? Why does Mary do this to Jesus? Well, Mary's showing her devotion to Jesus. She's showing her adoration of Jesus. She's showing her thankfulness for who Jesus is, that he gave her back her once dead, now living brother. She's worshiping Jesus. And she's doing so in an act of extravagant love. It's extravagant love. The word extravagant means excessive. It means over the top. It means lacking restraint. But the crazy thing is, what she's doing here points to so much more that we'll see here in a moment, more than like I said, Mary would even realize at the moment. And everyone in that house would have known something was going on. It said the whole house was filled with this fragrance. People, if they're coming out of other rooms, they're, they're dialed into this moment. They're smelling this aroma and they're coming to see what's going on, what Mary's doing in this act of extravagant love and adoration for Jesus. But not everyone is impressed. Not everyone is taken in by this special moment on this special night. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who, he was about to, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas is upset. And so he openly asks this question. Why? Why are we doing this with this stuff? Why isn't this sold for 300 denarii to serve the poor in the community to do ministry? Now, we knew this stuff is expensive that Mary's using. John told us that in verse 3, but here we see this supposed price tag of this. It says 300 denarii. That's the total of a year's worth of wages. A year's worth of wages. Like, this is super expensive ointment that she's pouring out on Jesus. 
the level of the extravagance of what Mary does is even greater than what we might have first guessed. And Judas sees this extravagant act and it bothers him. It bothers him. This is excessive. It's over the top. It isn't practical. What would be more practical, Jesus? What would be more practical? What would be be better use of this money is to take it and sell this and serve the poor with it, to do more ministry. And to be honest, at initial glance, especially if you're a pragmatic kind of person, and I can be that way, his response seems warranted, even holy or merciful. Like, that is actually a good use of money. We should do more ministry with this money, not waste it in this way. Sure, worship Jesus, but let's not be excessive about it. Let's not be over the top with it. We have other things to do. But his display of piety, his display of this ambition to serve the marginalized, it's all a lie. Look at verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, he said this not because he actually cared about poor people, but so he could take some money for himself. This is a sobering reminder for us here. See, what Judas does here and tries to seem noble about it is he pits kind of pragmatic compassion against uninhibited devotion and worship of Jesus, unqualified, extravagant devotion. And, And some of us, again, we can resonate with that. We can even encourage it. But in this at least initial display of mercy and care for the poor, for the marginalized, which might actually even meet real needs of real poor people, he's masking his true spirit. He's masking his true heart. A heart that knows nothing of the worship of Jesus. That knows nothing of adoration of the person that's standing right in front of him. See, Judas is upset over Mary's extravagant display of love for Jesus because he misses who Jesus really is. Do you sometimes miss who Jesus really is? In the hustle and bustle of life, in the need to get things done, things even done in the name of Jesus, do you sometimes miss Jesus? See, for Judas, there was a type of relationship with Jesus, but it was built on lies. It was built on this idea that he was going to pursue his own ends, his own way of going about doing things. There was no real relationship with all, at all. But Judas was around Jesus all the time. He was listening to Jesus. He was talking with Jesus. But he wasn't captivated by Jesus. His, act, his heart actually was hard towards this shepherd savior. Might that be the case for some of you today? That you aren't captivated by Christ? Maybe again, if you're younger Your parents have talked to you a lot about Jesus, but are you captivated by who Jesus is? Or is he just someone that someone else talks about to you? Do you know a lot about Jesus, but don't actually know him? Not in awe of him? Well, Jesus responds with a rebuke and an encouragement in verse 7. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. See, Jesus rebukes Judas to leave Mary alone. He says, leave her alone. Because what she's actually doing is preparing for the day of my burial. Leave her alone because the poor, they'll always be among you, but I won't always be among you. Now, Jesus isn't saying to us, we shouldn't take this verse and say, Jesus is saying, oh, we don't actually need to care about poor people and do ministries of mercy 
We know Jesus doesn't tell us that because Jesus calls us to be merciful. We see it in his life. He cares for the poor. What he's saying is that at this moment in time, the right thing to do, the appropriate thing to do is to sit at his feet. At this moment in time, the right thing to do is to be in his presence and to respond to his love with love. See, in his rebuke, he uses it as a chance, as he often has done, to point once again to his death and his burial his resurrection, and his ascension. Mary didn't know about Jesus' death and burial when she did this. She meant this as an act of adoration, as an act of humble devotion. But in this, like we saw from Caiaphas last week, she signaled more than she knew. Mary doesn't realize it, but what she's doing is what the rest of the Gospel of John is going to point out to us. Jesus is going to his death. He's going to his death for people like her, for people like me, for people like you. John had a unique view of this unique scene, but you and I also have a unique view. We can look back on this in light of what we know that Jesus did for us. John told us that Jesus came to take on flesh, the eternal Son of God. He came to dwell among us, taking on our humanity, and he lived a perfect life. He obeyed the Father fully and completely. He was tempted in every way that you are, yet did not sin. He loved God and loved others more than himself. And in his ultimate act of obedience, his ultimate act of love, he willingly went to his death so that he could be a substitute for you. So he could take on the wrath of God that you deserve for your sin and your rebellion, for your false religion and piety and self-righteousness. Jesus willingly did that for you. And he didn't display this love for you once you figured things out. He didn't display this love for you once you started to clean yourself up. No, Romans 5.8 tells us God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were rebelling against God, not looking for a relationship with him, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And so many other places in the scriptures that talk about the lavish love of God given to us in and through Jesus. What Jesus is going to do is extravagant love. What Jesus did do for us is ridiculous and excessive and even scandalous from the world's perspective. I mean, why would he do this in this way? Because you're a lovable person? Because you deserve it? Because you're great? No, because Jesus is love. It's the core of his character and nature. And we see it on display in his person and in his work. See, when you and I step back and we look at what Mary does, her act of extravagance, it seems small compared to Jesus' act of extravagant love for sinners like you and like me. Do you remember the goal and purpose of the Gospel of John and the goal of this sermon series? It's to see what Jesus has done, to see who Jesus really is, so that in seeing him, you might believe, and in believing, you might have eternal life. We actually see that take place in the rest of this text in verses 9 through 11. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. See, John concludes this section here by zooming back out, reminding us of the bigger picture of what's going on. And what he reminds us of is that new life begets new life. 
Lazarus is alive again, and that leads other people to place their faith in Jesus and experience eternal life in and through him. We learn the crowds find out about Jesus. They want to come see Jesus. They want to come see Lazarus. This man they've heard about. They've heard that he was once dead and is now raised. The Pharisees don't like that. And so now instead of just killing Jesus, they want to kill Lazarus too because they're blinded by their own sin and self-righteousness. Instead of being excited that people are turning away from false religion and doing these religious behaviors to the one who can truly save them and truly redeem them, they just press further into unbelief. But what about for us? How does this text accomplish the goal of seeing Jesus rightly? It calls us away from something and it calls us to something. What it calls us away from is false religion, false piety that's built on lies. See, piety is about being overtly religious or reverent. And in and of itself, reverence is a good thing. We should be in reverence of who God is. We should see our life conformed to Christ. But when our pursuit of this kind of outward religiosity or piety isn't genuine, when it's empty, when it's meaningless, it's potentially damning. And all of us can be tempted towards that in different ways. Maybe it's just religious showmanship in how you pray. That when you pray in a group or a crowd, you're like, man, I hope I can impress the people around me with the words that I'm using, the things that I'm saying. Or maybe in community group, you feel like, man, I need to make sure that people in my group know how much I know about God, how much scripture I can quote, how much, how deeply I think about the things of God. Maybe it comes through serving for you, that if people see how much you serve and how much you do, they'll think you're a good Christian. Maybe it's saying the right things or doing the right things. We can all be prone to do this, and we can do this and be applauded for it. We can do this and be encouraged in it. But listen, if it's without love for God, if it's not coming from a place of true worship, then it doesn't really mean anything. It's not honoring to the God that you say you're trying to honor. The reality is we're all prone to this in different ways, and so we need to be on guard so we don't go the way of Judas. But this text doesn't just call us away from something, it calls us to something as well that calls us to true worship. It calls us to extravagant love. Extravagant love for the one who has shown extravagant love for us. See, I think many of us probably know what Jesus did for us. We could talk about the gospel. We could talk about the cross. We could talk about the resurrection. But it's lost its weightiness in our life. We think about it theologically. We think about it in our heads. But we don't think about it worshipfully. I know I can be prone to this not only as a pastor, but just as a Christian. But I don't want that for me, and I don't want that for you. It's why we're doing this series. I want us to actually see Jesus, and in seeing Jesus, be enchanted by Jesus. Who he is, and what he has done, and what he is doing. To actually see Jesus, not merely as a means to an end. Maybe some of you wrestle with that. You think, Jesus, I know what he did. He, he saved me so that I can be in heaven forever instead of in hell. That he's just a means to an end for you. But no, Jesus is the end. God is the end, the Father, the Spirit, the Son together. When we place our faith in Jesus, we get Jesus. We get to be in relationship with Jesus. And his heart and his posture towards you, listen to me, continue to be extravagant. His heart and his posture toward you continue to be an otherworldly kind of love. Jesus didn't make a mistake when he saved you. He doesn't look at your life now if you've been walking with Jesus for a while and regret that he called you to himself, even as you continue to struggle with sin. Your sin only endears Jesus to you more 
because he longs for you to be free from it. See, when we see Jesus in this way, it's then that we can respond in true worship. It's then we can respond in extravagant love like Mary instead of false religion like Judas. We are able to love God in this way because he loved us first. So to close, how do we do this? How do we practically, in our own life, see Jesus rightly so that we might worship him fully? The first thing I want to call us to is to repent and believe. To repent is to turn away from sin, to turn away from rebellion. Belief or faith is looking to Jesus, placing all of our hope and trust in him. And repentance and faith are the main spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. It's how your new life in Jesus and with Jesus both begins and continues. We never move on from repenting and believing. So if, if and when you recognize that at times in your life you're performing for others, at times in your life you're performing even for God, trying to please God with your actions in order to earn his love, instead of worshiping your Savior with extravagant love, instead of resting in the extravagant love he's given to you, a love that you're coming before him, giving back to him, worshiping him in a way that you could care less about what others think about you. If and when you recognize that, you must repent. And I have to do this regularly. When I recognize in my own life that I'm actually focused on being a professional Christian instead of just being a Christian, just belonging to Jesus. And then with fresh, though sometimes feeble faith, I need to trust in Jesus again. To look and see my good shepherd who desires and longs out of love to lead me to still waters and green pastures. Who desires to restore my soul. In order for me to do that, that leads to the second thing I want to call us to. Is that I need to meditate both on the finished work of Jesus and, and the present work of Jesus. I need to sit in and reflect on the truth that I am his and he is mine. I'm redeemed, never to be lost or rejected, saved, never to be forsaken. I need to sit in and reflect on his lavish, extravagant, intimate love for me, not just in the cross, but the fact that he's with me now. I need to rest in the reality that he who began a good work in me will see it through to completion. I need to rest in the fact and meditate on that he can sympathize with me in my weaknesses, yet never fell to temptation or sin. I need to rest in and meditate on that he is a present help in time of need, that he will see me all the way home to glory. And then, then third, I'm able to respond in true worship. I'm able to respond with extravagant love. See, when I recognize and focus on the greatness of his, of his grace and love, when I take time to think about his majesty and his mercy, his power in his presence, I can worship Jesus like Mary not caring about what anybody else thinks about how I live my life before my God in worship. I can be like David in 2 Samuel when the ark of the Lord is carried six steps and David puts it down and says, we need to have a party. Let's sacrifice animals. I'm going to dance around because no one got killed this time when we moved the ark. They don't care about what anybody else thinks. They're captivated by their God. They're captivated by their Savior. I want to be captivated by my Savior. I want you to be captivated by him too with uninhibited adoration and worship. Now, I'm not saying that you have to dance around or shout, though you certainly can do those things. That's for you. What I'm saying is, is that showing extravagant love for Jesus, showing extravagant worship for Jesus isn't about your temperament. It's not about your temperament. It's about a heart that's captivated by your Christ. 
So is your heart captivated by him? Is it captivated by him in such a way that you want to pour out extravagant love like Mary? What might that look like for you? I know this for all of us. The entirety of our life is an opportunity to love Jesus with this kind of love. With extravagant love for the one who has shown us extravagant love. So as we close, let me ask you, who are you more like when it comes to encountering Jesus? Are you more like Mary or more like Judas? When you come to Jesus in his word, or you come to him in prayer, or you come to him in the midst of the community of his people, when you come and experience his presence, do you react more like Mary or more like Judas? And take some time this week to actually think about that, to pray about that. And then, as you recognize those things, repent where you need to. And meditate on who Jesus is and what he has done and what he is doing in your life. And may his extravagant love for you lead you to truly worship him. May it lead you to show extravagant love for him. To the praise of his name and for the good of your own soul. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you this this evening and we just pray, God, that you'd forgive us. Forgive us for our religious performance. Whether that's for you or for the crowd that's watching us. Forgive us, God, for where we've done things that make us seem holy and right and good, but the reality of our heart is, is it's far from you. God, we repent of those things. We want to turn away from those things. And we pray, God, that you'd give us fresh eyes to see our Savior like Mary saw Jesus in front of her. Help us to be captivated by Jesus. Help us to be so moved by his extravagant love for us that we respond in extravagant love towards him, not caring about what anybody else thinks about us. God, help us to live lives in such a way that the entirety of our life is an opportunity to worship you. We thank you for an opportunity of your grace today to be reminded of that. Now, God, would you compel us as we lift our voices in song to sing with a heart that doesn't care about what anybody else around us thinks about our singing voice or anything, but to sing for you to lift our voice in praise to you. May you be honored today. May you be glorified today and for the rest of our lives. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace. Go in peace.